Welcome to Building Astropad. I'm Matt Runge, co-founder and CEO at Astropad, and I'll be taking you behind the scenes at our company where we build software and hardware products for creative people. So if you're a creator interested in starting a business or creating your next big project, join us and let's learn together. Well, hi everyone. Matt here, here with Savannah. Hello. Yeah, and so today we're talking about Apple and antitrust and how to fix the App Store. So Savannah wrote this really great piece on some ideas on how to fix the App Store because Apple's been under a lot of antitrust. Actually, big tech in general has been under a lot of antitrust scrutiny recently because of the amount of power they control over the economy and people's lives. And Apple's been one of them. But one thing we noticed is everybody was talking about how Apple, and we're going to talk a lot about Apple because that's the one we understand the most, we're most familiar with. A lot of people talk about how Apple has a monopoly, but nobody talks about what to do about it. What are some remedies other than massive government intervention? What are other ways? What are ways that, say, Apple could go about fixing the problem themselves? And so Savannah put this awesome piece together on that. Yeah, everyone likes to talk about the problem, but no one is offering solutions. And the only solutions that I have seen are very high level and not very, I don't know, actionable or tangible things that could happen easily. So, I mean, yeah, there's been so much commotion and and discussion about this over the past year, but not a lot of, you know, solutions that have been out there. So that's what my hope with this article was to do is put some things forward that wouldn't actually require legislation. It wouldn't depend on the U.S. government to step in and fix these problems. These recommendations that we're going to talk about are all things that Apple could do today to fix some of these antitrust scrutinies that they're under. Before we get started, I do want to say that we are not antitrust monopoly experts by any means. Yeah, definitely not. (laughs) Yeah, no, we are just, you know, some people, part of a third party development company that happens to, you know, have gotten caught up with this antitrust stuff. So I think that's where we should start is talking about how we did get, you know, tangled up in the antitrust drama that's been going on. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. So our original product, Astropad, well, and actually Luna Display too, both Astropad and Luna Display, we ended up getting what's called Sherlocked by Apple, which for those of you that don't know, it's common for Apple to see popular hardware, software in their ecosystem and to essentially copy it and integrate it with their systems, with their operating system, integrate it with their hardware. And this has been going on for a long time. But Apple's never been as powerful as they are now. And big tech in general has never been as powerful as they are now. And in fact, I don't think Apple's ever done as much Sherlocking as they're they're doing now. And we were one of many that particular year that got swept up in that and was, was Sherlocked. And after that happened, we became a company that people were reaching out to and wanted to talk to about Apple and antitrust. So journalists started reaching out to us and started talking with us. Yeah. And that was happening because we were being very open about our experience being Sherlocked, which was different from what a lot of other companies did when they were Sherlocked. I think there's this fear that if you speak out against Apple, you're going to get crushed by them. And We, I mean, getting Sherlocked, it definitely hurt our business. And so we kind of felt like we had, in a way, like nothing to lose but to be, but to be open and candid about our experience, hoping that, you know, maybe we could start a conversation and maybe incite some change with the Sherlocking and all the antitrust stuff. So we've been outspoken and it's not coming from a place of like, oh, we we're whining about being Sherlocked. I mean, what happened happened and we've moved on from it and we're in a honestly much better place now because we were Sherlocked. Like we are taking our products cross-platform, launching on 
windows. And so in the end, it was for the best. But we've learned a lot of really good lessons about it, about running a business and yeah, some like bigger lessons about big tech that we want to share. And so that's where we're coming from. Yeah, it'd be a shame not to share a lot of the lessons we've learned. You know, we certainly don't have everything figured out, but we've definitely learned some things in the school of hard knocks here. And this stuff doesn't apply just to Apple. This also applies to businesses that rely on Google services. This applies to companies being built off Facebook. This applies to companies selling goods on Amazon. All of these are major platforms that have to be really careful with their overlord in a way, the platform they're they're building on. So our experience comes from the Apple world, but this is applicable to so many different kinds of companies. Yeah. I think if we had to sum up like the biggest lesson that we learned from getting Sherlocked is that you can't rely solely on one platform, which is what we were doing. Like we were totally wrapped up in the Apple ecosystem and now we've learned our lesson. And yeah, I think that's applicable for any platform that you could be developing for. But we have a different podcast all about everything that we learned getting Sherlocked. And I don't want to talk too much about that today because I want to talk about actually like the App Store and what what could happen to make the App Store a more even playing field for third-party developers like us. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And if you are interested in more of the Sherlocking story and the immediate aftermath and how we reacted as a team, go back to our first episode. Savannah and I did our first ever podcast episode was on that. So check that out. But yeah, let's talk App Store. Yeah. So we have five recommendations for the App Store. And before we get into them, I want to say like the ultimate goals for each of these recommendations is that they level the playing field for developers and that they promote a rich app economy for consumers. If those two things happen, then developers win, consumers win, and Apple wins, really. like I do think that it can be like a win-win-win if Apple did these things. It would be good across the board. So that was my metric for coming up with these recommendations is, is it going to help developers, but also ultimately are consumers going to win and benefit from these things? So just to like from the top, give an overview of the five recommendations, they are enabling users to set default app preferences. The second one is open up alternate payment mechanisms without the Apple tax allow sideloading of iOS apps, give third-party developers equal access to APIs, and the fifth one is to stop Sherlocking third-party developers, <laughs> which we can speak directly to. So going back to the first one, which is enabling users to set default app preferences. Matt, what are some of the current limitations for users when it comes to setting app preferences. Yeah. So Apple did recently open this up some, and I really should pull up my iPhone here and see what they allow you to do now. But it used to be that you could not change at all any of the default apps. So if you clicked an email link, if you clicked a web link, if you clicked an address, it would go to whatever app Apple felt it should go to. So in the case of a link, it would go to you know Apple's Safari web browser. An email, it force you into the email app. There was no way to override the defaults. You're forced to use what Apple wanted you to use, which in their case is often their services as well, like Apple Maps. They don't really want you using Google Maps. And they've made it really hard to switch out the defaults, even though there's a wealth of third-party alternatives from other from both big and small companies. They have not made it easy to change that until recently. And this is a result of people speaking up in that antitrust pressure working. I mean, Apple is making changes the more people talk about this. So since this article was written, they have changed it some. I'm actually going to pull it up on my iPhone here. I need to find it right now. But yeah. And those the thing too is the defaults are super powerful. I mean, very few people are going to go out of their way to use a third-party app 
when clicking on an address automatically takes them to Apple Maps, right? They're going to stick with Apple Maps. It's very unlikely. You really have to know what you're doing to, to even work around that. So it's extremely powerful, extremely sticky to be able to set those defaults. And on top of it, former Apple, the former, I think it was director of App Review, even admitted that Apple had talked about this internally and they didn't want to allow changing the defaults because they knew that having the default was so sticky and it would drive so much user engagement by not being able to change it. So they, wow. were, they were afraid of, for example, being able to set Gmail and Google, you know, basically override the phone, right? And their nightmare scenario, you're using Google Voice for making phone calls, you're using Gmail for email, you're using Google Maps as the mapping app, and you're basically no longer really interacting with Apple's software at that point. And that's not what Apple wants happening with their devices. Yeah. And by... If it was completely open for users to set their default preference, then it really forces Apple to compete based on merit, you know, and like the quality of their apps rather than forcing people into using Apple Maps when they really, they really don't want to. So not only would it be more freedom for the consumers, like the people using iPhones or whatever, um, but yeah, it kind of raises the standards across the board because now Apple is going to be competing with, you know, all the other third-party developers on the quality of their apps. And a good example of of this and how it's been going on for a long time is back in the 90s with Netscape and Microsoft. Do you want to talk about that, Matt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was so you know, Netscape was at the time the the most popular, it was the popular browser at the time. And Microsoft viewed this as a serious threat, a serious threat to their, their Windows monopoly and the control they had over desktop computing. And they didn't want to see more people using web-based stuff. And if they were going to do it, they wanted it to be done through Microsoft software. So they put together Internet Explorer, but Internet Explorer wasn't very good. And people didn't want to use it. And so they made it difficult so that people would use Internet Explorer by default. You know, they shipped that as the default. They made it so you couldn't easily switch over to Netscape. And they even used some private APIs on Windows, too, that only Internet Explorer had access to to try to use their ownership of the platform and their ability to set defaults to edge out Netscape. Ultimately, the Department of Justice brought an antitrust lawsuit against them. And it went on for years and years and years. In the meantime, Netscape actually pretty much collapsed, right? Yeah. It, it, Even though before that, it was like, you know, the star of Silicon Valley, you know, it was doing super well. And then I think over that whole process, it just kind of, you know, deflated. Yeah. No. And the, and the Department of Justice law, you know, the antitrust lawsuit that takes a really long time. And it's hard to say even if what happened, did that have an effect, even an effect on Microsoft, other than perhaps distracting them, where they were busy fighting the government in court rather than being able to work on new products. So it ultimately didn't end well for Netscape. But that was an example of like the power defaults and how being able to lock it in. And there was other things too that Microsoft did on top of it. There was a, there was a host of things, you know, private APIs, they had requirements with the PC manufacturers, all sorts of things that they eventually did get in trouble with. And it's not too different what Apple's doing right now with the default apps on on iOS. And that's why they're relenting to some of the pressure and they're allowing. And I just looked it up. It's, it's pretty clunky still too, to change the default app. You can do it for email and web browser. I don't think you can do it for anything else like Google, like mapping or anything like that. It'd be great if it was truly open, you could do it for anything. But again, their incentives are not, they don't want to allow that. And even when they are allowing email and, and web browser, they're not making it easy to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So definitely some room for improvement there. Definitely. Definitely. So then moving on to the next way to fix the app store, which is opening up alternate payment mechanisms without the Apple tax. So I think there are two things to break down here. What 
what does alternate payment mechanisms mean? And also what is the Apple tax? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the Apple tax is that anybody that goes to the app store has to pay 30% of, of their revenue to Apple, their sales to the app store to Apple. And they do have a provision in there allowing for subscribers that you've had for over a year, if you're a subscription app, only pay at a 15% rate. But that was very deliberately calculated as well. They know that most people don't renew beyond a year. So therefore, effectively, they're still getting their 30%. It's something something sneaky there as well. That It doesn't seem obvious at first. It's like, oh, they're allowing 15%. It's like, well, yes, but that's a very small percentage of users because there there's a lot of churn in B2C subscriptions. So with the Apple tax, like we have one of our products, Astropad Standard, $30 on the App Store. And every time someone buys that, we give $10 to Apple, which is kind of crazy. 30% is a lot. Yeah, that's wow. Hard to wrap my yeah, mind around. Yeah. No, and and you're not getting a lot for it, right? Apple would say that they're providing a lot. They're providing hosting. They're providing payment. Security. Security. Yeah. But a lot of this already existed before as well. You know, there's other ways to just distribute software. Payments on the internet are pretty much a solved problem now with things like Stripe. And that's also what we mean by alternate payment mechanisms. So if you're on the web and you're, say, going to an e-commerce store and you check out, often there's a lot of different options for you can do PayPal, you can do credit card, you can do you know, Apple Pay, Google's payment thing now, Amazon Pay. There's like lots of different ways. So we'd consider all those to be alternate payment mechanisms. You can choose how you want to pay. Versus the App Store, the only way you can pay for a software or in-app purchase or a software subscription is via the App Store, via Apple's payment mechanism. They don't allow any other way to do that. Wow. So this came up over the summer, I believe it was, with Epic and the Fortnite battle with, they were kind of having beef with Apple and Google, I believe, kind of talking about the 30% Apple tax. And they... They were kind of making a big deal about this, not so that they would get a special deal with Apple, but really they wanted, they were trying to help all sorts of developers by encouraging Apple to, you know, minimize that Apple tax and cut it down from 30%. And I think they ended up getting kicked off of the app store actually because they kind of rerouted their their payment method around the app store so that you know they didn't have to give up that 30% tax. Yeah, they added basically an alternate payment method and they actually priced it differently too. They priced it cheaper. They were like, "Oh, we're going to pass on some of the savings to our customers." And Apple was not happy. They pulled the app. In fact, they all, they tried to revoke their developer account so they couldn't do iPhone, iPad, or Mac apps, but a judge actually got involved, prevented Apple from revoking their developer account. So it got pretty pretty nasty, and it's still going on right now. I think the trial's set to begin in the summer between Epic and who, who makes Fortnite and Apple. They're both, you know, Apple being the <laughs> most valuable company in the world and Epic being a you know, multi-billion dollar company as well. So they're going to really, really duke it out. That'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's going to definitely be interesting. What's also been revealed from this is that it turns out that for some time, some apps have been getting sweetheart deals. Now, I told you earlier that your average developer, your indie developer, your, your small business on the app store has to pay 30%. Well, it was revealed that some, like Netflix, Amazon, actually had negotiated 15% deals. So it turns out it's not even even playing field. And even worse, it's for companies like Spotify that compete directly against Apple services. They're really in a tough spot because for Spotify, the music business is a very competitive industry, very you know price-driven as well. And for Spotify, they have to pay 30% of their subscription done through you know the iPhone. And the iPhone is probably has to be the most popular way to listen to Spotify. And they have to pay 30% of that to Apple versus Apple's own service 
Apple Music, well, it's the same company. So, of course, they're not giving up that 30%, right? So, they're at a major advantage just by being the owner of the platform compared to compared to Spotify. So, it makes it it makes it hard to compete with Apple Music, it makes it hard to compete with Apple services, and ultimately, you know, you're going to see less less options and services out there because of that 30% where some businesses aren't able to compete. And what's interesting is Apple even internally admitted that. So what's been going on since this as well is there was a House Judiciary Committee who we actually have spoken to that's doing investigation antitrust into big tech. And they've been investigating Apple and they requested emails and documents from Apple. And within those documents, early on with the App Store, there was some emails between executives saying, yeah, you." the one issue is with 30%, roughly, I'm paraphrasing here, but roughly with a 30% cut, if we do stick to that with the App Store, that's going to make some businesses non-viable on there. And they were like, well, that that's okay. We realize that that's okay. And that might have been fine in 2008, 2009, but the App Store and mobile devices were not such a huge part of our everyday lives and the economy as well. And so that needs to be, I believe, take looking at with a fresh set of eyes, you know, because even Apple knows that the 30% doesn't work for some businesses. Mm-hmm. And some companies, you know, they've found ways around this that work, like Netflix, for example, if you try to sign up for a Netflix subscription on your iPad, it's going to tell you to to go online, right? And and purchase it, you know, not ex- directly through the Netflix app. And so that creates some friction there. Like it's it's harder for the consumer because it, now it's not like a direct process to to make that purchase, but the reason that they do that is so they avoid the Apple tax. So by opening up these other payment mechanisms, it you know, is going to make it better for consumers to choose the payment method that they prefer. And then again, it raises the standards for developers to create the most frictionless paywalls. So right now, you know, on the App Store, the frictionless payment method is, and the only payment method is to purchase directly through iTunes or Apple Pay. And if there were more payment methods, they would all be competing based on, okay, which one is the easiest? And of course, Apple would have the benefit there of being directly integrated because there's always going to be some friction with going to your wallet, taking out your credit card, going through that process. But again, it just gives consumers more options and raises the bar to create a better experience for consumers. Yeah, definitely. And if there's one of these recommendations here that, you know, we talked about the default apps that when when you wrote this piece, Savannah, hadn't happened yet. And that has happened to some degree. Now, this second one, opening up alternate payment mechanisms, I think this is another one that's likely to happen. Just reading the tea leaves, I think it's a matter of when, not if at this point, that Apple is going to have to compete on the merits of their own payment system. And a lot of their arguments too are undermined. You know, they say, well, this is for user experience. Well, you just pointed out with the Netflix app, it's super confusing. You go in there and you're like, how do I sign up? It's, well, you can't, right? Because of Apple's arbitrary rules. Where they say, oh, it'd be too confusing to have have multiple ways to pay. It's, it's just so much simpler if there's just one way, the Apple the App Store way to pay. It's so much simpler. Well, that argument is undermined already by what's on the App Store because what happens is, is for Digital goods, digital things, you need to use the App Store. But for anything physical, you're not allowed to use in-app purchases or any payment through the App Store. So you might have noticed if you do Uber Eats, you call an Uber, DoorDash, anything of that sort that it's more like the physical world. Let's say even it's an e-commerce app and you order, order something in there, right? That's not going through the App Store. You're entering in a credit card, you're using PayPal. And that's also to Apple's rules that for, for physical goods, it can't go through the App Store. So they're already doing it. They're already doing it for some of the most popular apps on the App Store right now, and nobody's confused by it, right? It's not a problem. If it was a problem, they would they would change the rules on it, right? So it's just that they want to keep that that revenue stream. They have a very healthy revenue stream from that that 
in-app purchase and that and that 30%. But ultimately, you know, it's not 2008, it's not 2009 anymore. App stores are a major part of our everyday lives, the economy, and it's going to change. I really think it's going to change. It's just a matter of when. Mm -hmm. So moving on to the next point here, the next way to fix the app store, we're going to talk about side loading of iOS apps. So can you explain what side loading is and why it isn't currently allowed? Yeah. So what this would be is it would allow the iPhone or iPad to actually function more like the Mac in that. So if for the Mac, there's multiple ways to get apps for your Mac. You can go to Apple's Mac app store and you can download and purchase, if it's not free, an app on the Mac app store. Or you can often go straight to a developer's website and purchase and download directly as well. And it's been that way for a long time. Versus the iPhone, you can only, and the iPad, you can only get stuff via the App Store. Android, on the other hand, has allowed a sideloading mechanism. So what that means is you can get things from Google's Play Store or you can, from alternate app stores or from a developer's website, install apps as well. So it's a way to install apps that doesn't, go through Apple's App Store. And the reason this is important is because Apple has App Review on the App Store. And it's actually put them in a really tricky spot in many, in many ways where you have to be, your app has to be reviewed and approved by Apple before they allow it. And there's been cases where people have said that it's been used for anti-competitive reasons where it's held up apps that are potentially competitive. It's pulled apps from the store that are potentially competitive. A good example of that is the parental control apps where Apple, after Apple introduced a parental control feature, many third-party parental control apps are actually pulled from the app store. And the New York Times did a whole, whole piece on this that was really good. Another example that's been really tricky, and I think this is another example of how not only is this good for the economy and consumers, but it would also be good for Apple as well, is there's been some censorship cases too, where in China, the Chinese government has asked them to pull certain apps. There was like a Hong Kong app when protests were going on that Apple was forced to pull that helped protesters avoid, I think it was like uh, police, some, something along those lines. And many people in you know democratic countries were very uncomfortable with the idea of Apple, an American company, pulling this app that was helping protesters in Hong Kong fighting, fighting the government. So that's a case I'm sure where they love would have loved to have a way to do a sideloading of the app and not have to be the one deciding what, what goes and what doesn't go on the app store. So why does there need to be app review for iOS and not Mac OS? Or is that process, is there a different process going on? Well, for any of the app stores, the Mac app store as well, there's a review. And there, I mean, there's good reasons too to have some kind of review on the app store because if you don't want something that, because it's an Apple's app store, some people view it as being, I would say, cleared, okayed by Apple. And so you don't want things that are clearly fraudulent on there, right? Because in a, in a way it's being shank, sanctioned by Apple. But on the Mac, yeah, you have those both ways. So only on stuff in the Mac app store has to be reviewed, but stuff downloaded directly from developer websites doesn't. And Apple would say that, you know, it's for security. It's to prevent against fraud. But the thing is, is we've been doing it on the Mac for a long time. And there's actually more security mechanisms in place than compared to there used to be. A lot of the security on the iPhone and the iPad comes from the sandboxing environment, which means that an app can only access certain data. It's only really allowed to, it's isolated. And that's a way to think of it is each of the apps are isolated from each other. And anytime they interact and it, and it tries to pull data from the system, you'll get a system prompt and it'll be like, Hey, would you like to allow access to the microphone? Hey, would you like to allow access to the photos? Right? So by default, it's, it's isolated. And that's built into the operating system. And that has nothing to do with the app store. So those protections could still be in place, even if it was done via siloing. Hmm. So Apple is kind of saying, you know, we need this app review process for the iPhone because or for iOS for security reasons, 
But then on the Mac side, like they've already found a way to do it without going through app review and maintain that security. Yeah, that's right. And on the Mac, they still have some security mechanisms as well for apps that are distributed through developers' websites where apps are verified. And that means that Apple has a remote kill switch so that if one of those apps was ever deemed to be a virus or a malware of some kind, Apple could remotely turn it off. And it's able to do that completely without the App Store. So there's still a lot of security protections that can be in place without the App Store. But it gets Apple out of the business of determining what's good and isn't good for consumers to have on their iPhone, which I think a lot of people would believe that Apple, Apple shouldn't be the, the, the one deciding that especially when they have their own apps, you know, competing apps and they have their own vested interest in in pushing their apps like Apple Music or Apple Arcade or they've got a fitness thing coming up, right? They have an incentive to push their Apple Fitness app in front of Peloton, right, on App Store. So it's really in the consumer interest and to create a fair and even playing field that Apple's not in that business and that these can be distributed multiple ways. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people say, yeah, the app review process can be a bit arbitrary sometimes, like the rules. I don't know, Apple, it just seems like enforces some rules sometimes. And then other times, you know, it it doesn't seem as strongly enforced. And we we ran into that a few years ago with the camera button debacle when we we tried to launch a new feature in Luna's display called the camera button where you would tap the front facing camera and it would bring up some UI on the screen in our app. And we didn't even submit this to the app store, right? Yeah. It never even made it to app review before you got a call from Apple saying, yeah, don't even try. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we released a preview video. It was super cool. People loved it. We'd still have loved to put it in the app. Still today, would love to put it in our apps. It was effectively adding another button to the iPhone or iPad. Yeah, but Apple saw wind of it and we're like, yeah, we don't like this. Don't even try submitting. We're going to reject it. You know, mm-hmm. and it's another spot too where it's like, oh man, should Apple be solely be a, be the one to choose like which innovations they want to allow? on mobile devices in which they don't. And you could say, well, there's well, there's Android, right? There's Android. But the reality is 50% or even it's a little bit more than 50% of mobile devices in the US are iPhones. So you can't ignore it, right? It's not like you can just be like, oh, I'm going to ignore the iPhone and just go to Android. No, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. Not when 50% of the market is on the iPhone. Mm-hmm. So I think the big benefit of like higher level benefit of allowing sideloading is that it would allow third party developers to innovate without the fear of getting rejected from app review or worse kicked off of the app store which has happened before so again it it helps consumers ultimately because you get innovations in these apps that are going to keep pushing the boundaries, which is better for users. They want more innovative things. And it doesn't have to be limited by whatever Apple wants to accept or reject in the app review process. Yeah. And I would I would add too, and you know, gets Apple out of the censorship business too, where they're mm-hmm. being told by different governments around the world to pull certain apps at that point, it wouldn't matter, right? Like it could be that there's an app that, okay, the Chinese government forces Apple to pull it, but you know what? It's still available as a sideload. So it doesn't really matter, right? Mm -hmm. Because yeah, it's a tricky spot for Apple and it would allow them to sidestep that that Mm -hmm. issue. So moving on to the fourth suggestion for fixing the app store is giving third-party developers equal access to APIs. Do you want to start by explaining what an API or a private API is? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good point. So private, so API, application programming interface, that's what it stands for. But it's a way in which you build your apps. You build your apps using APIs and those APIs allow you to hook into the system. So if you want to get photos from the system or if you want to set a certain color on the screen, that's all done through APIs. That's how you control the device as a third-party developer. And there's a certain set of APIs that are public 
and are vetted and tested and documented and officially supported by Apple. And those are the public APIs. And then Apple also internally has their own private set of APIs. And they've done this for a long, long time where they've had private APIs for things they want to do internally that maybe for security reasons they don't expose. Maybe it's something they don't want to commit to supporting a long time because once you put an API out there and third-party developers start using it, you need to support it. So there's many reasons they may not want to put an API out there as a public API. And so they've had private APIs. But developers have been quite frustrated with this recently. And that's, again, because it used to be that Apple really only made, for the most part, really only made the operating system and the hardware and the third-party developers supplied most of the software on top of it. But now, as the hardware business has slowed down for Apple, because basically everybody in the world is, you know, there's they've run out of people to sell iPhones to essentially, right? Like there's only so many computers, iPads and iPhones, and they've, they've really saturated the market. So they've turned more to services and software to boost, boost their revenues. And so that puts Apple in direct competition with third-party developers. And so in the case of things like, let me use Apple Fitness as an example versus Peloton, Peloton being a third-party app developer and Apple Fitness. Apple Fitness now, because they're part of Apple, they have access to some APIs that a third-party developer like Peloton doesn't have access to. And so that can put them at an unfair advantage where they can access things, for example, things on the Apple Watch, right? If Apple could access whatever they want on, on the Apple Watch and integrate that with their, their Apple Fitness app versus Peloton is limited to what's available within the public APIs, which is not everything. And... Again, you may say, well, that's fine. It's Apple's device. It's Apple created the Apple Watch. They should be able to do that. They own the platform. Yes, to a point. But there's such a large portion now of the economy. They're such a huge player. They're the most valuable company in the world. And so many other businesses are built on top of what they do. That to me, that argument doesn't hold water anymore. They're too big. They've been too, too successful. And they have used private APIs to edge out third-party developers. A recent example of that, that's Tile. They make a tracking system where you can track items. And they Apple used their access to location data, and they're, they're rumored to be coming out with their own Tile competitor, versus Tile that has to jump through hoops and different prompts to get access to that location data. That makes it a lot more difficult to set up and use a Tile, a third-party third-party system. So that's an example of how Apple can tilt the board in their favor by having access to those APIs or even creating their own APIs that third-party developers don't. Yeah. So it's like they're competing on with some insider knowledge that... Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I guess, again, looking at like a high-level benefit for consumers is that if, if third-party developers have better access to APIs. They're going to create products that have better integrations with the hardware. And, you know, overall, it, it's going to create better products, more choices for consumers. And that's, I mean, that's what, you know, competition and healthy competition is all about, like more choices, better choices, but it's limited when, when one the large force here, Apple, that is very powerful, has insider knowledge that can just kind of suffocate the rest of the competition. I think that's what a lot of these points boil down to is that Apple is a platform provider, but it's also competing on its own platform. That's the same problem with Google and Amazon, they control the platform, in this case, the App Store, but they are also pushing their own apps. And that creates a conflict of interest. And, you know, people who who offer like other suggestions for fixing these problems are talking about actually breaking apart the App Store from Apple, it's called breaking apart the the platform utilities, pretty much. I think that's the term for it. 
which, you know, that's a bit more complicated. I think that requires a lot of legislation. And I mean, people like Elizabeth Warren, that's her proposal for antitrust and and monopolies and big tech. And yeah, I think I think there's a lot of merit to that because it, it really isn't fair to be competing on on the platform that you control. But again, like with all of these points that we're talking about today, these things are things that Apple can do today that don't require legislation and the government stepping in. And it's going to, again, benefit everyone, consumers, competition. So it yeah, it all kind of boils down to that one thing, though, which is that Apple is competing on the platform that it owns. So, yeah, I think that yeah, brings us to the, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, you're totally right. That's totally, that absolutely is it. You know, and the approach you're talking about is really, you know, the dynamite approach where what we're saying here with some of these changes that I know Apple doesn't want to make, but it's more a chisel and hammer compared to having the government come in and, you know, dynamite the whole thing and force Apple to separate the app store. Yeah from Apple or forcing Amazon to separate their marketplace from, from the rest of the Amazon, right? Because these things apply to Amazon as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be worst case scenario for those companies. I'm sure that they really don't want that to happen. But it's like if they don't get on top of these things, then it's kind of heading that way because there are more and more you know, cases coming out like with Epic and Spotify that are just bringing more attention to this. It, it's bringing more attention to how outdated our mon- monopoly laws are. Like these laws were written like over a hundred years ago, and we're trying to apply them to big tech, which I think we're learning the limitations of that right now. Definitely. And especially considering you know, in the world of digital goods and services too, and software where things can be done for free, right? A lot of the existing laws where things are done on on consumer price, like does this lower the price for, for consumers? And I know that's been tricky with things like Facebook or Google, where they're ultimately free for the users. So how do you how do you argue a case that it's that it's bad for consumers when your metric is price, right? You know, I think that's one of many examples of how the way antitrust laws have been interpreted. Yeah. uh, It made this difficult. Yeah, like the antitrust laws that we have today, they assume that the the ones that were written, you know, over a hundred years ago, they assume that the ultimate benefit for consumer is price and low price. But in actuality, there are a lot of other factors that play into you know, a healthy market for consumers, which is like variety and quality. And those are the things that in the case of the app store, the third party developers are able to add in. Sure, you can get the free options like the default apps that come with your iPhone. But if you want something that's really custom to your needs, that's where, you know, the the third party developers come in with their options. So so yeah, I think there's definitely some room for improvement with monopoly laws. But but yeah, we need to get into our last recommendation for the App Store here, which is <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. that Apple should stop Sherlocking third-party developers, <laughs> which we know about firsthand. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And for this one, it may just sound like sour grapes too, but that's not, as you're saying early on, that's that's not what this one is about either. It's like, how can this benefit the ecosystem in the future? For us, we were we are moved on to other things, cross-platform, new products. We got all sorts of stuff for us. So this isn't about us. This is about for the, the future of the ecosystem. And you know, if every time that there's a brilliant new idea that a third-party developer does, if Apple's frequently copying that. Fewer and fewer people are going to be willing to go out on a whim and try something crazy and innovative for these devices. Versus compare that to if Apple didn't have such a history of Sherlocking and instead would acquire many of these companies, even these like one, two person companies, right? They come up with something super innovative. That would create a whole new effect on the market. In fact, you'd, you'd have this cottage industry of 
all these people trying wild ideas. It'd be like an R&D factory for Apple, right? If everybody's like, yeah, Apple tends to buy when they find something really cool, they tend to buy it and bring it in house. Versus today where it's like, oh, they, they see something cool and they tend to copy it and, and just do it themselves, right? Think of the effect that would have on the overall ecosystem. You're going to have a lot more people trying a lot more innovative ideas. You're going to have a lot more options out there for people. You're going to have a lot more innovative apps. Because right now, if somebody's got an innovative idea that's potentially difficult to do, and it's going to require a lot of time and commitment, for all the reasons we've talked about today on the podcast, you know, those are all things that can scare them away and be like, you know, as soon as Apple sees that this is a good idea, they're probably going to get into the space, you know? And so I'm not sure I really want to build this on Apple's platforms. I'm not sure I want to you put the work in to do this. Right. And that would be, I think, completely different if Apple was more likely to acquire a lot of these companies and bring them in house. Yeah. Apple has shown that now they have this pattern of Sherlocking. And I think that is, it discourages innovation. It stifles it. It really does because it it sort of backs the third party developer into a corner where if they get Sherlocked, I mean, the scenarios that happen from there are, you know, they're either going to be out of business, which is scary. And then in, the consumer loses ultimately because now the consumer no longer has access to that app or that business or in the other scenario like with what happened with us if you know you get sherlocked and it's such a devastating blow you're going to have to quickly pivot and go into other markets which i mean ultimately is it's great for us that we're going to the windows market and expanding but it just means that we we can't prioritize Apple like we were before. Like now, now we're going to be prioritizing a different market alongside of that. So yeah, I think I think overall with Sherlocking, it just it creates this fear. Like every time you watch, you know, an Apple developer conference, it's like, oh my gosh, is today gonna be the day that your business is ruined by by whatever Apple is now baking it into its ecosystem. So it's like this constant fear versus, yeah, what you said, how awesome would it be if it was just like constant innovation where where everyone was competing to get Apple's attention? That's not the case though. Yeah, no, and, and what you're saying about the developer conference is totally true. I mean, it's become something of a joke in the developer community where people are like, all right, all right, start the developer keynote. Who's going to be Sherlock today, right? Like it, they come to expect it each year now. Yeah, and another thing this made me think of too, that this doesn't apply just to Apple as well. This applies to other big tech companies. But in terms of innovation and advancement in a lot of these industries, there's in the House report that went out on antitrust, the House subcommittee on, on antitrust, they talk about in there how they spoke to a venture capitalist that described anything that competes with big tech as being in the kill zone. And what they mean by that is that they don't like to fund stuff in those arenas because they know if it has success, that big tech's going to copy it and, and use their control over the platforms to try to kill it. So you have these whole like areas now where less R&D money, less investment is going into because everybody's afraid of big tech and what they're going to do. Right. And that that's cutting cutting down on the innovation in these areas, you know. So that's yeah, ultimately not not a good thing for, you know, consumers or the end users as all. Well. They're getting fewer options and less innovative options. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I really I really stand behind these recommendations that we put together. I think I think a lot of good could come from from these things and yeah, it seems like every developer conference, Apple talks about how they they love their third-party developers, like all everyone who supports their ecosystem, but it seems like they're not really walking the walk by, you know, competing and and suffocating these these small developers that really push, you know, ultimately we push their their products to be better. 
and so yeah, I really stand behind these and I I would love to see Apple continue to move towards some of these. It seems like there have been some good things happening already, but it's not enough. And I mean, if we rely on the government to step in and try to fix these, it's going to take forever. And by the time it happens, you know, big tech will be evolving into something else. But I think where we are today is that everyone relies on these products, Amazon, Apple, Google, like they are so ingrained in our lives. And it is time for the monopoly laws to catch up a little bit because it's like, I think Matt, you, you talk about like the example of the electrical grids, like back, you know, over a hundred years ago where, you know, they weren't, they weren't regulated. And then they just became so like such a part of our lives where it was time, it was time to regulate it. And because it was so widespread. And I think that's where big tech is right now. It's like, we've, Big tech has grown so big that it's it's time to sort of wrangle it in a little bit. But yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like any new innovation, like you were saying, the electrical grid or cars or the telephone system, right? These are all at one point were all new innovations. Only a select few people had them, but then over time, it came to everybody. And as it came to everyone, it became more and more important to business and society, like you're saying, Savannah it became important to regulate it and make sure that access was fair and equal to everybody. And yeah, I think that's the point we're with with big tech. Tech has become such part of our lives, both business, personal, especially during these times right now, during COVID, right? Where so much of what we do is through technology. So yeah, it's time, as you're saying, to catch up. And I think, yeah, all this would be great for the Apple ecosystem. And a lot of these things would be great for for big tech as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And ultimately, what we're looking out for is the consumer. That's what these regulations are supposed to protect. Competition, the consumer. Yeah, we want to we want to create a an ecosystem that that brings the best innovation to people. So. So yeah, We'll have to wait and see what happens. I think the story is still unfolding. It seems like every few months there's sort of an update on on what's happening in the big tech antitrust world. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, no, still a lot to come on this. This is certainly not settled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, thanks for the good discussion, Savannah. Yeah, yeah, maybe we'll have a part two sometime. Yeah, I think we will. There are going to be more developments here. But for now, part one. All right. right, We'll take care now. All right. See ya. 